Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit prostateoneperday.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm James Holland, and this is the Chalk Valley History Hit. I have to say, it really is a very great pleasure indeed to be introducing this next podcast. He's a brilliant fellow, tall, square-jawed and dashing, and a man who's on a mission to really popularise history and bring it to the masses. It's something he does incredibly well, not least because his passion and enthusiasm are so fabulously contagious. I am, of course, talking about none other than the History Hit founder himself, Mr Dan Snow. Dan's been a great friend to the Chalk Valley History Festival, and I don't think has yet missed a single one. And every talk he's given has always been just superb. Nor can I think of anyone who delivers a talk to an always packed tent with such incredible nonchalance. He steps up on stage with no notes and usually not even any slides, and talks for almost bang on 45 minutes in the most fluent and fascinating manner possible. It's quite extraordinary. This is the talk he gave last summer after being in France for the 100th anniversary of the start of the Battle of the Somme. The anniversary itself, Friday the 1st of July, was commemorated at the festival with a very moving service beside our own section of First World War Trench. Dan, however, was in France as part of the BBC's coverage team, but two days later, he was with us in South West Wiltshire, giving us his thoughts on the battle and what he'd witnessed of the commemorations over there. The anniversary may have passed, but the battle remains such a key event in Britain's history, and as such, we really hope you'll find his Somme reflections every bit as fascinating as it was when he first gave it last July. Everybody. Hello, everyone. Well done. Congratulations for braving the I'm on this. I can walk away from here and I still work. Does that still work? Very good. Um, has anyone particularly ruined their shoes in, in coming to see me this afternoon? Wait a second. I want to come and inspect on a shoe inspection because I do feel a bit guilty about that. Let's see, that, those are old hiking boots. They weren't ruined. Has anyone got a nice pair of shoes that have been ruined? Here we go. Right. You, you can come to the front. Yes. <laughs> is anyone else? Uh, who are you with? Is that your? That's your. Is that your father? Okay, you can come to the front. That's a nice shoe. Come on, come to the front. So th- thank you and sorry for the damage I've caused to your shoes. Uh, and relationships. If your shoe stays anything like mine, it always leads to arguments within the, the family unit. Um, this, there's a, a seat or two just here for you guys. There you go. Uh, so, I've just come back from the Somme, where it was considerably less muddy than it is here, uh, and, um, and I thought I'd share with you uh, this afternoon some thoughts about the Somme. You've probably been hearing lots about it from far more distinguished historians than I, but I'll, t- I'll talk a little about the Somme, why it happened, what it was like, uh, share with you some of the amazing primary sources that I have come across, both as a result of the Radio 4 series I've been working on, which I hope some of you have listened to this week. It's honestly, I think, probably the best thing I've done. And the reason for that is I have very little to do with it. Uh, it's actually the researchers who go through the archives, the BBC archives, the Imperial War Museum archives, and then pull it all out, and I just write the links. I just write a bit of a script. And then all these extraordinary sources, uh, extraordinary audio, audio primary sources, the voices from beyond the grave, these men telling you about what it was like during the First World War. And I am very interested in this, because the First World War is the first war in history that we have this kind of archive for. Boer War, only half a generation earlier, nothing. You might as well be talking about the Punic Wars. Young people, you go Boer War, they look at you like you've gone insane. The First World War, we have the archive. We have the video and the audio recordings of these men's voices and, and what they look like. And therefore, what we're all embarked on now is a massive experiment to see if the dawning of the, of the audiovisual age will help us connect with events in our past in a way that we didn't 
uh, a couple of generations ago. And so we are only starting to learn now whether, whether young people, whether society is more connected with the First World War than it would otherwise might have been, i.e. with the Boer War or the Battle of Waterloo or something from which there are no sources remain. So I think we're all involved in a very exciting experiment. So that is the pitch for the Radio 4 thing. I hope you listen to it. Like I say, it's the best thing I do because I have very little to do with it. Um, the Somme was, uh, was raging 100 years ago as we speak now. I went to the... Uh, I reported for the BBC on the... Uh, 100th, uh, the centenary uh, foot, um, commemorations from Tietval, and it was, it was remarkable. I'll sort of share with you some of the, uh, some of the stories as we go through. Uh, uh, he, he very kindly, in the introduction there, he mentioned my very illustrious ancestor, David Lloyd George. What he did not mention was my equally illustrious but slightly less fashionable ancestor, who has a link to the Somme. Major General, and there's the clue, uh, Sir Thomas Snow who commanded a corps, uh, he was not yet Lieutenant General, he was Major General still at that point, he commanded a corps on the Somme. He commanded the worst sector of the Somme, the attack of, on Goncourt, which was as futile and bloody and disastrous as any other attack on the Somme, but it didn't even have the advantage of, uh, it actually was not even meant, it was just a, it was a diversionary attack. It wasn't even designed to break through, at least everyone else, they thought they might actually achieve something. These guys died... For, the, for a purpose that they couldn't even fathom, which was that they were, they were dying to just hold down the Germans' attention from looking further south where the big breakthrough was going to be. And that was my great-grandfather. And after the battle, I'll talk a bit more about the things that happened in his sector, but it was a total disaster. And after the battle, he wrote a letter to Allenby, his, his commander, uh, and to Haig above him and explained the setbacks in his sector by saying, I regret to inform you that the men lacked offensive spirit. That's bad. So for me, going to the Somme is, there are men, there are many men on the Tietval Memorial, to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, those who have no known grave. There are many men on there who are there as a direct consequence of decisions taken by my great-grandfather. So it's a, it's a curious place to go for me. I, my mum's great-uncle was uh, with the Welsh at Mamet's Woods, and I have all sorts of other strange links with the battle itself. So it's always been something in our family that we've, we've talked about and thought about quite a lot. Why did it, it, was the, it was the largest battle fought on the Western Front in the First World War, the Battle of Somme. Why did it happen? It happened because of a compromise. No one particularly thought it would be a good place for a major offensive. It was agreed in December 1915 that the British, the French, the Italians, and the Russians would bring the German Empire to its knees in 1916. They would simultaneously attack on all the various fronts. Now, if you think the Somme is bad, everyone, go and read up a little bit about the Italian front. Well, there's a little tiny uh, diversion here. The Italian front in World War I is the most mind-blowingly awful history I've ever read in my life. It's completely extraordinary, uh, and it makes the tactics and approach of, of, on the Western Front look um, elevated. Anyway, so the Russians uh, launched big offence on the Eastern Front. It's actually one that they're most successful of World War I, the Brusilov Offensive. Almost destroys the Austro-Hungarians. Uh, and then the British and French were planning a massive blow, a breakthrough battle on the Somme. Why on the Somme? Haig didn't want to fight on the Somme. Haig wanted to fight elsewhere, further north. But the French said, we are, we are going to fight, we need to fight a joint battle and we're going to fight where our two armies meet. And that happens to be in Picardy on the Somme. Uh, and, and as the Battle of Verdun then happened in early 1916, the French then lessened their involvement in the Somme. They sent far fewer divisions than they were otherwise going to. So it became a, a British-led battle fought uh, in, in a location and at a time not of the British choosing. Which, in this week of taking back control, I thought was fascinating. Uh, a fascinating thing to think about. Uh, Haig moved, he, he, he fought, uh, he, he agreed to launch the attack before he was ready because the French were being bled white at the Battle of Verdun, another terrible battle going on further down the line in the early part, early in, part in the summer of 1916. So uh, the British agreed to launch this mighty assault. It's the first battle in British history where British forces on the continent of Europe fight as uh, we, of course, 
there's the war of Spanish succession with Marlborough, there's Wellington, but Britain always fought as part of coalitions, and often, even if there was a commanding position, they'd be the junior partner in terms of manpower in these coalitions. This was Britain taking an active role, striking the main force of the enemy uh, in, in Europe uh, uh, with, 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 a, with a predominantly British force. And so it's a, it's a sort of fascinating moment in, uh, in, in, our, in our history, really. The big issue with the Somme, and one of the less, I'll talk lots of the reasons it didn't go very well initially. Haig, the British commander, uh, well, first of all, there was no joint overall command. So the British and French, there was still a bit of French involvement, and they would attack on the 1st of July as well. More on that later. But there was no overall commander. There was no Eisenhower figure in the Battle of the Somme. So the British and French sort of knocked along, rubbed alongside each other, and were constantly threatening each other, saying, you can't tell us what to do. You're, I don't answer to you. Uh, and so that wasn't a particularly happy situation. But, um, but Haig wanted a breakthrough battle. He was going to attack. He was going to break through the German lines. And he was going to get to Berlin by Christmas. Other British commanders weren't as sure. And what they wanted to do was fight a bite-and-hold battle. You break a break-in battle, not a break-out battle. So you take the German front-line trenches, you and then you wait a bit, and then you take the German second-line trenches, and you wait a bit, and it's just relentless, slow pounding. So there was always this tension, and that tension came out in things like artillery fire plans, and it ended up being, being a cause of the uh, slightly, um, well, the disappointing results on, on day one, let's just say. Um, what, what we've got, uh, the, the basic plan is along a, lot, a very broad front, you would send a huge number of troops over the top, having smashed the German positions to smithereens. And that's the important bit, because everyone says generals in World War I were rubbish. If you go to, that's what I learned in primary school, they're rubbish. But you've got a big problem in World War I. A big problem, probably the trickiest problem that has ever faced military planners ever. In fact, I'll be interested to hear from other historians who think that's true, because I think it might be. You've got defensive military technology that is capable of firing almost unlimited amounts of supersonic steel into a given area any one time, capable of destroying any human being in, in an almost unlimited patch of ground. And you don't yet have the offensive capability, the weapons, the, the tactics, to get across, to, to, to deal with that, to, to you know, get across that beaten zone safely. And I, whenever I go to primary schools, I always just draw on the whiteboard. I draw a big field and a machine gun at one end, capable of firing about 600 rounds a minute and lots of machine guns. Then artillery that's pre-sighted, German artillery, nicely dug in, very comfortable digs. They've, got, they've been there for two years. They know that at the drop of a hat, they can, they can land as much uh, shrapnel or high explosives into this area as they want. And they can pinpoint and do it with pinpoint accuracy because they've been practicing it for two years. If someone says... One meter left of that old tree stump over there, bang, they can, they can drop a shell right on that. They've got telephone lines that are dug two meters underground that make them impervious to British shelling. So you can talk, the guys on the front line can talk to their artillery saying, yep, the Brits are coming, uh, left a bit, right a bit, you've got them. Now, how do you cross that beaten zone? How do you do it? It's not as easy as it sounds. You know, it's not as easy as we might assume. In fact, it was incredibly tricky and it took some of the greatest minds in the world several years to, to work it out. But work it out they did, and the Somme was a key part of that. The Somme was a, a bloody and appalling but vital learning process for the British Army. Uh, the German defences, let's just come back to them a little bit. The Germans had advanced in 1914. They'd almost won the First World War right out, the, right out, of, the, you know, right out of the, the gates. Uh, they hadn't. They'd been stopped in front of Paris. Then they'd withdrawn on, on the Western Front. They'd largely decided to defend on the Western Front and deal with the Russians out east. So when they withdrew, they withdrew to high ground, good places, good defensive positions, and then they started digging. And they dug and they dug and they dug. And they built deep dugouts and they built trenches with concrete reinforcement bits in it. And they built, as I say, these telephone lines and double belts of barbed wire in front of the trenches, each 30 meters wide. And then they dug a second line, a third line. Then just for good measure, they dug an entirely different line of trenches behind that that were out of range of the British artillery. So it was an incredibly complex and sophisticated defensive system. So the Brits, the Brits tried several things over 1915, terrible losses. But what was quite clear is that artillery is going to win this war. Napoleon had said 100 years before, it is with the cannon that one makes war. And that was certainly true of the First World War as well. So rather than sending little fragile human beings like me who are a bit keen and have been to public school and think it's all jolly good, but then we're not much use. We worked out quite rapidly. So you blast enemy positions with steel and high explosives. You, and you destroy uh, even the most insanely 
complicated defensive system it was believed could be destroyed by a monstrous barrage, a barrage of artillery unlike anything that had ever been seen in the world before. Britain was the greatest maritime power on earth. Britain, that, uh, Britain had what still had one of the greatest economies on earth. It had been the manufacturing powerhouse of the world the previous 100 years. It turned its mind to creating massive amounts of firepower for its guns. The problem is that process took a long time. Factories had to be swapped over. They'd been making fridge magnets. They had to suddenly start making shells. Workforce had all disappeared off to fight. New workforce had to be brought in. Women were doing it for the first time. Huge, huge problems in providing this many shells. But you, uh, the idea was, at the Somme, Rawlinson, one of the generals in charge, says nothing could exist at the conclusion of the bombardment in the area covered by it. That's the idea. You just obliterate them with shells. In the end, they fired well over one and a half million shells in the week leading up to the Somme. One and a half million shells. It was the largest bombardment in history to that point. Uh, at the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle in March 1915, only, only just over a year before, in the space of half an hour, they expended more shells than had been fired in the whole of the Boer War in South Africa in the space of half an hour. And this was a seven-day-long bombardment on a much, much larger scale. Uh, in, in fact, in one day, a British field gun at the, in uh, the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle had used uh, a number of shells equivalent to 17 days of armament production in one factory, uh, in, in, sorry, in the whole, all of Britain's factories producing shells. So one field gun had fired that in, uh, in one day. So you've got to gear up. You've got to create an enormous number of shells you can, uh, you can fight. And you've got to have the guns. And then, you, you, then you've got to just uh, obliterate the German defenses. That was the plan. Um, uh, then at this point, then, of course, the, the guns would fall silent. And the infantry would walk over and, and take a wasteland. They, would, they wouldn't have to do any fighting. They would, just, they would take possession of the wasteland. You would drag the guns forward, cross the mud with no 4x4s. You'd drag the guns forward using horses and men. And then you would do the whole thing again. That was how you are going to win the First World War. And this was going to be the first major demonstration of that. Now, before, so before the action, the men are waiting. They're, ready to, they're waiting, to go, waiting for the guns to stop firing. And I've, there's, so many, I, I'm, I, there's so many beautiful and poignant lines. I've just picked out a few. Um, Noel Hodgson wrote in his poem, Before Action, in late June. And it was just one line just stunned me. The, the, the final line of the poem, uh, it just said, despite this artillery going down, the guys on the front line knew that it was probably not going to be as easy as that. <laughs> uh, and he, just, he wrote one simple line at the end of his poem going, help me to die, O Lord. And, and that everyone had, everyone thought, well, lots of them thought they were going to die and they wanted to die well. And, and that is, that, those letters and poems being written on the front line do slightly belie the fact that there was great optimism among the generals and senior officers that the German defences had been destroyed. Uh, a Captain Charlie, and, and uh, Noel Hodgson was killed on the 1st of July. Another man killed on the 1st of July, Captain Charlie May was killed on the 1st of July. Uh, I don't want to die, the thought that I may never see you or my darling baby again turns my bowels to water, he wrote, just before being killed on the 1st of July. Uh, meanwhile, while these 1.7 million shells were being fired by 1,000 field guns and howitzers and about 400 heavy guns, and I'll come back to that because that's important, uh, General Snow, my ancestor, um, had talked, talked to some men. One of them is called Private Percy Jones. He goes, General Snow tells us we shall have practically no casualties because all the Germans have been killed. We know, however, that the Germans have dugouts 40 foot deep, and I don't see how the stiffest bombardment is going to kill them all off. If the Germans obstinately refuse to die, our scheme will become impractical. Um, the Germans were suffering under this massive bombardment, but they were deep down. They were deep down in these shelters. And you've got Stefan Westman here. Day and night, the shells came upon us. Our dugouts crumbled. They fell upon us. We had to dig ourselves out. Sometimes we found them suffocated, sometimes smashed to a pulp. We had nothing to eat or drink, but constantly shell after shell burst upon us. Now, it's hard to say, and there's a phenomenal military, German military historian at, at the back of the room here today, Rob Schaefer. Uh, but I think something, it's thought something like low thousands, perhaps three or four thousand Germans were killed in that bombardment. So considerably less Germans were killed than the British plan was depending on. Uh, my great-grandfather wrote to General Haig on the 26th of June, just before the 1st of July, obviously, 
and just simply wrote, they know we are coming. Uh, just at 7.20 in the morning on the 1st of July, the weather had been bad. The storm had been delayed a few days. The weather had been bad. And the first day of July, as you all know, dawned beautiful blue sky, sun. It was, it was as many eyewitnesses reported, it was an appalling thing to have to go to war on that day. Nature screamed against it. And, and at 7.20 in the morning, just at the final barrels going, every single field gun, every single heavy gun was opening up on the German positions. At 7.20 in the morning, the British blew two enormous mines that they dug. And a mine uh, is literally a mine. They just dug a huge tunnel under the German lines, packed it with explosives, ran off, and lit the touch paper. Uh, and to these two together were representing about 100,000 100, pounds of high explosives, blowing a huge... A piece of terrain up into the air 10 minutes before the infantry attack was going to be launched. And this sadly only served as a, as a terrible warning to the Germans that they were about to be attacked. Uh, Malins, Jeffrey Malins was actually filming that in the first, probably the first moving, some of the first moving combat footage ever filmed. He went, Suddenly, the ground where I stood gave a massive convulsion. It rocked and swayed. I gripped hold of my tripod to steady myself. Then, for all the world, like a gigantic sponge, the earth rose into the air hundreds of feet. Higher and higher it rose. With a terrible grinding roar, the earth fell back upon itself, leaving in its place a mountain of smoke. Smaller mines were blown at 7.28. And then at 7.30, the guns fell silent. The soldiers all remember hearing the skylarks above them. And then the infantry whistles blew. The British and the Newfoundlanders, let's not forget those heroic Newfoundlanders who were fighting alongside them, climbed out of their trenches. And this is what uh, one of the uh, German infantrymen said he saw. The very moment we felt the British artillery fire was directed against our reserve positions, i.e. the British artillery fire stopped and it started hitting targets far, further back and things like that, Machine gunners, German machine gunners, crawled out from their bunkers, red-eyed, sunken-eyed, dirty, full of blood from their fallen comrades, and opened up a terrific fire. A Brit said, at zero hour, we climbed out of our trenches, and not a man hesitated. As soon as I ran up the rise out of the trench, I was under a hail of bullets whizzing over my head. Most of our fellows were killed kneeling on the fire step. It was just as if we were on a training exercise, which was absolutely mad when you think about it. We were sitting ducks straight into the death trap, hundreds of us, just hopeless. Uh, where I was, where you, those of you who watch the TV on, on uh, Tietval on the weekend, the reason Tietval Memorial's there is because it's on a hill, strategic hill, uh, down, if you're standing looking down at the, the British positions, the Germans are up, where that big arch is, the biggest war memorial in the Commonwealth, uh, big Commonwealth war memorial in the world, that's where the German positions were, almost exactly there. To the right was the so-called Schwaben Redoubt, incredibly strong fortification, which the Ulsters were attacking, at 7.30 in the morning. Beyond that, Beaumont Hamel, the Newfoundlanders were attacking. But at Tietval, two battalions particularly attacked Tietval first thing in the morning. One were the uh, Newcastle commercials, men from Newcastle who joined the Northumberland Fusiliers. They joined as mates. They uh, were, there were members of the Newcastle football team among them before the war. They fought alongside the Salford Pals, a Pals battalion raised from people of the same profession, mates, neighborhoods, jobs, uh, all from Salford. They were cut to ribbons. The, the Tietval, that exact sector, was one of the most futile and bloody sectors of the entire uh, Battle of the Somme on the 1st July. Within about half an hour, several hundred men had been killed or wounded. Both those two battalions lost about more than 50% of their strength uh, immediately. Where, where my great-grandfather uh, was in command uh, at Gomcor, the 56th Division actually reached the front line. This is why his comment about them lacking offensive spirit is particularly offensive. <laughs> Uh, they reached the front line. They were then counterattacked brutally by, by the Germans. It was, very, it was very difficult. As the troops went forward, there was no way of relaying information back to your own side for reinforcements or artillery support or anything, supplies. So they occupied the German front line trenches. Uh, they, they talk in the diaries all about bombing. Their hand grenades is obviously the weapon that was the most important. So they threw every hand grenade they had. When they ran out of hand grenades, they basically had to re retire. And of course, they then retired across no man's land, being shot at and, and blown up in, with exactly the same effect as, as crossing the land the first time. So the German artillery was on them and, and uh, they suffered appalling casualties. 80% um, of the Sherwood foresters in that division were, were killed, wounded or captured. My great-grandfather had been given eight heavy guns 
to try and suppress the German artillery. The problem is that number of guns sounded impressive, but we attacked over such a large area that they were too thinly spread out. He was given eight heavy guns, uh, and in a, I suppose, to a certain extent, honorably, but he directed most of those guns to actually fire further south to support the attacks that were going on further south. And he was so aware that he was a diversionary attack, he was doing what he could to support the main attack going into the south. But the, resu the result was his men were sent in on what was effectively a, a suicide mission. Uh, further along, down, as we go down, um, we've got uh, the, the attack. My, my great-grandfather presided over 8,000 casualties that day for no gain whatsoever. And, and, uh, and the, the diversionary attack, as well, obviously didn't need to happen because the attacks further south, the Germans were able to repel them fine with what, what they had on the ground there anyway. Uh, further south, you've got uh, eight corps, lots of PALS battalions here. They've never been tested in battle. Ser, uh, they attacked the village around uh, Ser. The, the PALS battalions we've all heard about, I mentioned them earlier. Kitchener had wanted 100,000 men. They had to be 1.6 metres tall. They had to be about not, preferably late teens, younger than 30. They got loads and loads of men. And PALS battalions were actually a way of... Funnily enough, I had a very interesting podcast as I did with Professor Peter Dole the other day. Pals battalions were actually slightly socially exclusive. It was a society of hierarchy. It was a society of suspicion about the kind of people you might end up serving alongside. If you join the army, you might sort of even end up serving alongside some dodgy Irishman or something. It's a bit scary. Uh, and so, in fact, Pals battalions were a way of saying to people, you will join up with people of your own kind, people of your own faith, your own community, your own neighborhood. So, and it was a way of ensuring that uh, well, helping to, the, the men overcome their qualms about joining, joining the army, if you like. You've got uh, units like the Accrington Pals. Uh, Sheffield raised a Pals battalion in two days. Two days, they got seven, eight hundred men. Uh, and in Tyneside, there was a race between the Scots and the Irish to raise a battalion, they, and the, the Irish won. Um, at Sayre, the Pals met their nemesis. Uh, of about 720 Accrington Pals, 584 became casualties. Um, the 15 West Yorkshires, the Leeds Pals, were wiped out before they even left their trench. Often you're massing in your frontline trench or even in your second line trench, you, and, and then you, before you've attacked, you're under brutal German gunfire and, and, uh, and lots of men didn't even leave their own front line. Another uh, German officer wrote, our wild firing slammed into masses of the enemy, all around us, rushing, whistling, and roaring of a storm. Belt after belt was fired, despite the fact that hundreds are already lying dead. Fresh waves kept emerging to assault our trenches. Um, at Tietval, where I was, uh, the official history, the official history of the British Army wrote, it was said with some truth that only bulletproof soldiers could have taken Tietval on that day. Uh, there were minor as you go down to the south, there were minor successes. So Mametz was captured, a village there. And all the way down to the south, where the French were launching their assault, the French enjoyed the most successful day the Allies had yet had in World War I on the Western Front. The French captured all their objectives, and they helped the British capture their objectives just to the north of them as well. So the French, who used slightly different tactics, uh, used um, much heavier guns, much more concentrated, and their, their barrage did work, their bombardment worked, uh, and it was... A sign of things to come, if you like. Um, the colonial first corps actually took the German second line. They actually went further than had been expected. It was, a, it was a success. The French managed to do that success, losing about 1,800 men. The British uh, lost just under 60,000 men in one day, 20,000, 19,500 of them killed outright, making it the bloodiest day in the history of Britain, the worst day in the history of our military. At 8 a.m., just as the slaughter was beginning to fade, uh, Rawlinson received a note. He says, the corps uh, are reported well over the German front line. And he wrote in his diary, the battle has begun well. We captured all the front line trenches easily. Meanwhile, Fred Higgins was on the front line. He wrote, it's abject fear. It takes the stuffing out of you. You don't know what to do, whether to get up or to stop where you are. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. Nearby, Donald Murray of the King's Own Yorkshire LI wrote, All I could see were men lying dead, screaming, men on barbed wire, their bowels hanging out, shrieking. I was just alone in a hell of fire and smoke and stink. The French uh, 
uh, as I say, uh, we had a more successful day. The German losses on the day, perhaps around 10,000. So far, far fewer than the, um, far fewer than, than the British had hoped. Whole companies and battalions of the English troops lay on the ground, having been mown down in lines, said a German officer. No man's land in between the English and German positions was full of miserable scenes. Whimpering men were calling out from nearly every square metre of ground. Our own medical orderlies helped out wherever they were needed. The victims, who moments before had been the enemy, were now just injured fellow human beings who could be handed over to their own countrymen without fear of reprisals. The following days, people tried to take stock of, of what exactly had happened. Uh, and there's an amazing quote about church parade here. The infantry came in, were a mere handful, in each battalion, a mere handful of people. The colonels sat in front of what had been their battalions, sobbing, said Royal Engineer Thomas Dewing. So, the battle went on until November. I mean, we'll have questions at the end, by the way, don't panic. The battle went on until November, but let's just think about the reasons for the failure. Why did that happen? Why did the British it experienced such a colossal slaughter and it was such a gigantic and disastrous mistake. There are lots of reasons. Uh, the men were inexperienced. The officers were inexperienced, the NCOs were inexperienced, the generals were inexperienced. It's, not only was it the trickiest problem facing any military mind in history, but it was a problem that had just suddenly emerged very recently. So if your my great-grandfather, as a young man, as a young officer, had a wild old time chasing Zulus around southern Africa, being very brave, decorated, no, no you can't fault his courage or his, his tactical grasp of 1880s warfare. The problem is the world had changed so dramatically in, in, in the space of, of the intervening decades. And, and it was very hard for people to understand it. I always think it's like saying, if we had a massive all-out cyber war now, it would be a bit of a mess, clearly. We have no idea. People are working it out as they go along. They're making stuff up as they go along. So if we, this new era of warfare has dawned, computers online, people trying to shut down power stations, clearly we'd make a total pig's ear of it for a few years before getting it right. And that's what happened in the First World War. The trouble is, in the First World War, hundreds of thousands of young men, millions of young men were killed, maimed, and had their lives destroyed as people worked out how on earth to come to terms with this new generation. There was that complacency about the barrage. That was fatal. There was a belief that the barrage would do the job for the, for the men and it would just simply sweep away all German opposition. Uh, the German defences, another reason it says that very, very impressive, powerful German defence I mentioned earlier. Dud shells, this is a big problem. As you're ramping up wartime production of shells, those shells aren't going to work. And there's one historian I was talking to last week who met lots and lots of veterans of the first day of the Somme, and he said they remember coming up to the barbed wire and they were just dangling with British shells that failed to go off. So not only are you trying to get through uncut barbed wire, because the barbed wire hasn't, hasn't been cut, you're, it's also dangling with, with unexploded ordnance. So it's doubly difficult to get through. It's the wrong kind. And, that, and those shells didn't work because these factories have just been set up. People are making them. They're desperately learning on the job. They were the wrong kind of shells. Shells, there's a special kind of shell you can get with a fuse that when it just lightly dusts against something, it can blow up. And that can destroy barbed wire. And the Brits were using too many shells that were just plonking themselves into the mud and blowing up was like that and were just reorganising the barbed wire. It wasn't actually cutting the barbed wire. So lots of little lessons there, technical lessons about how to cut barbed wire using shells. Um, there wasn't enough heavy artillery. You want big, heavy guns that are going to penetrate those German dugouts and blast them to pieces, not little field guns that are going to sp spray uh, shrapnel everywhere. You don't have artillery spotters with the front lines. And nowadays, if you go out... With, if you watch any Hollywood film or you go out and with, you watch your Ross Kemp in Afghanistan, you see the infantry marching along and they encounter something that's bad. And what do they all do? They go to ground, call in an airstrike, watch it, take some selfies in front of it, and then keep going. That's what you call forward observation. It's you, someone there is with the infantry and will use artillery or airstrikes to clear the path of the infantry. It's, it's, you don't get infantry doing sort of charging up a field to try and sort of winkle out a, an Afghan sniper from a tower over there. You do it with machinery. You do it with the technology. You can't do that at the Somme. So there's this tragic case on the Somme of people like the Ulster Division getting into the enemy positions and then having no way of calling back their own side and saying, can you please lay down some fire for us in front of our position or we're here, please stop shelling us, please start shelling us. There's no way of doing that. Uh, there were no battlefield radios at the Somme. No battlefield radios. Amazing. 
Uh, and it was very difficult to get back across no man's land. It's physically difficult. It's physically difficult to run across no man's land. It's also difficult because the Germans by that stage were shelling no man's land. So these people were totally isolated. No one had a clue how the attack was going. So you can't call in, you can't call in support. You can't bring artillery forward without it getting stuck in the mud. And I don't need to tell any of you guys about mud. But mud is uh, anathema to military operations. And, and you see, that, I mean, it's great to be here and see the effect that people walk. It didn't have that much rain. My garden isn't doesn't like this. We had a big downpour yesterday, but I haven't walked 25,000 people through my garden. And when you try and walk loads of young men and haul loads of guns across wet ground, it churns it up and it becomes effectively impassable. And it's impassable because they had no tracked vehicle. They had hardly tracked vehicles at that point. They had solid wheeled guns that had to be pushed and dragged forward by horses and men. So it's incredibly difficult to get those guns. In the event of you do actually have a success, you have to then bring the guns forward to support that success, and that takes a long time. It's not mobile artillery. They had the wrong fuses. I've talked about that. The German awareness, that's right. So the Germans knew they were coming. That's a pretty bad thing that can happen. That's rule one of Sun Tzu's art of war, attack where you're not expected. That is a, a lesson that the British generals did not uh, absorb. So the, the Germans knew they were coming. The Germans had all sorts of, uh, all sorts of reserve troops there. And, it also, and even the, the British artillery, in order to warm up, it would, it would ha it would, so all these guns are brought to the sector, the artillery fires a few practice um, shells down the range. You go, okay, we're trying to, your target's over there. Let's just blast a few shells down. They get the old barrel warmed up, see how we do. Let one long, one short, then next time we'll do it right in the middle, bang. So what are the Germans gonna do? They're gonna move, the, they're gonna move their defensive, they're gonna move their guns. So at, later in the war, you use silent registration of guns. You use maths, which is pretty terrifying for a pre-war British officer. You use maths and you predict the weather and you work out the barometric pressure and the wind, and you work out the trajectory of the gun, and you have maps that are so unbelievably accurate, they're still perfect today, even with GPS. And you realize that without firing that gun, you can hit that crossroads on the first shell being fired with a cold barrel, because you've made all the necessary adjustments. And therefore, you can line up artillery in the woods, say, outside Amiens in 1918. You can stick so many guns in that place, it's bristling like a hedgehog, and you know that they're all going to hit the target first time because you're using these silent registration techniques. They don't do that on the Somme. So the Germans know they're coming. And because of the weight of fire, you know exactly where the, the, main, um, the main thrust of the assault is going to be as well. This is, the issue. this is another issue. All these men being very heavily laden, carrying 60 pounds, carrying a huge amount of weight on their back. Very hard. What do you do? What do you do? Do you make the men really light? Give them a pair of trainers and tell them to run as hard as they can towards the German trenches? Because when they get there... They don't have grenades, they don't have any uh, ammunition, they don't have the supply, they don't have the food to keep them there for two days. Or do you load them down as heavily as possible with all the gear they're going to need and then send them off into the German frontline trenches and say, look, just hold on there as long as you can and then we're going to try and get you know, reinforcements up to you. So in the end, the men went very heavily laden and that wasn't, that wasn't stupidity by the generals, but it was a decision that was made to try and overcome this issue of, of making these men self-supporting, providing them the support they need when they're actually in the enemy trenches. And I guess there is another problem with the Somme, which is the assault was too rigid. So there wasn't, it didn't, the, the, the plans were so rigid, possibly because it inexperienced the men. We've all heard about the Somme, everyone lining up and walking as if you're on a parade ground. Well, that was because the men were inexperienced. It was thought that it would be better to line them up side by side and march them towards the enemy. They'd have more, rather than telling everyone to like, all right, lie down, crawl across no man's land, get on as best you can by yourselves. Because the thought was these men are going to be absolutely terrified. They're going to go to ground, lie in shell holes and stay there. So we're going to line them up where the sergeants keep an eye on them and we're going to march them at the enemy. So all of these decisions are made to overcome the weaknesses, the perceived weaknesses of the British army. And unfortunately, on the first day of the Somme, they add up to an absolute catastrophe. Uh, but the Somme goes on. Let me just quickly, I'm, I'll talk for another five minutes and I'll have some questions. Uh, by the way, the questions, if you don't want to talk about the Somme anymore, we don't have to, because you might be bored of the Somme. Ooh. Bunker Hill is about to fall again. Uh, uh, the, um, if you want to talk about anything else that I'm up to at the moment, please feel free, because the, the, there's obviously lots of different things going on. Uh, so what happens to the rest of the Somme is quite interesting. And, and the British... There's always, there's always this tension between breakthrough and, and, and the so-called bite and hold. And there's some quite successful attacks on the Somme. 
Now, success is a word you've got to use in comparative terms in, in, in the First World War, but there are some successful attacks where Rawlinson, this, this, this British commander, has his idea, and you just pound a very, rather than attacking over a huge, great length of territory, you attack on a very narrow front, you push all your heavy guns in there, and you blast the German front line to pieces. And then you don't try and break through, so you don't then bother trying to sort of think about blowing up other stuff further back. You just obliterate a very precise front line, move forward and hold it. Bite and hold. Bite and hold. And with a series of punches, you slowly cave in the German front line. And this is more successful. The Germans, having really not lost many casualties or much ground on the first day, they captured about three villages effectively on the first two days. Um, the Germans do then lose territory. And the Germans compound this by ordering suicidally brave counterattacks to, pr to protect every inch of ground. Uh, again, defensive generals, you have a choice. Do you, are you flexible? Do you allow the enemy to, to attack, exhaust themselves, bleed them white? Or do you fight for every inch of ground? And, and when you do lose a trench, you immediately counterattack with fresh troops and try and take that trench back. The Germans in September and October particularly uh, did a lot of that. And some historians think the Germans came closer to collapse in a sort of autumn of 1916 than at any time until 1918. But that is historian's parlor game that we can all play at another time. But the, but the Germans did then start to lose quite a lot of men trying to resist these short, very sharp attacks. I'll talk about one of them because it's uh, quite interesting. Um, well, we could talk about Mamet's Woods, but I think I'm running out of time. That's where all the war poets and the Welsh, extraordinary moments in, in Welsh history, certainly, where my mum's great uncle was. Uh, uh, all, uh, the, the, the British um, kept attacking all through the summer. The French, a French officer wrote, the British infantry is very brave, but undergoing a costly apprenticeship. Uh, and that's certainly true. But from the 15th to 22nd of September, there was an interesting assault. It was at Fleur Corselet. Uh, there was a, another, it was a limited attack. It was a, it was a bite and hold operation. The British punched into the German, and, and it's quite an interesting idea, this idea you don't try and break through the German lines. What you try and do is break into the German lines and then stay there, and then a few days later you punch again into the German lines. Um, and about 100,000 Germans uh, were killed in September, and lots of them as a result of this battle. The New Zealanders and the Canadians arrived on the battlefield for the first time. Uh, and, of course, famously, the tanks were used for the first time. Now, this is Haig's use of tanks here is very controversial. Should he have saved the tanks until they're a bit better working? Um, this is tanks. It's amazing. People think about the First World War. They think it was a time of stalemate and conservative view thoughts. The tank was a bit of technology that went from the, that went from the you know, soft area innovation station in, in late 1914 people just blue sky thinking, messing around. It went from that to on the battlefield two years later, slightly under two years later. That's pretty impressive for deploying a whole new weapon system like the tank. So the tanks rumble onto the battlefield in September 1916. There were 49 tanks in France at the time. 36 of them reached the British front line. 27 of them reached the German front line and only six uh, went on beyond that front line. The big problem with the tanks is they broke down all the time. They were very unreliable. They're quite slow. The machine gun bullets, rifle bullets bounced off them, but German field guns quite rapidly realized they could blow them up. Uh, they poisoned the crews inside them. There was no separation between the crew compartment and the engine compartment. You're just jumbling around inside next to the engine there, the manifolds baking hot, carbon monoxide pouring out, fuel dribbling through the roof. Um, crews were hospitalized after spending a day or two in the tank. But Haig, so did, and they did achieve some, some of them achieved some success in that first battle. Should Haig have saved them up, uh, used them en masse as he did a year later at Cambrai to achieve much greater effect, much more surprise effect? Who knows? He threw them into battle because of the overall strategic situation with allies and things. It also allowed him to test them out. And Haig, to his credit, although he wasn't, I think, probably in lots of ways a massive early adopter of new technology, Haig, to his credit, orders 1,000 tanks to be built for the following year. That's a huge, huge um, commitment of British industry. So he's really he's backing tanks a lot. By the battle of the, the last phase of the uh, Somme Offensive Battle of the Ancre, where finally the British managed to clear through some of the positions at Beaumont Hamel and things that they'd hoped to be attacking on the first, hoped to achieve on the first day. So some of the targets for the first day on the Somme, they don't take until November, uh, months later. Uh, how many people died? Here we go. So about 11 kilometers were taken, six, seven miles were taken at the Somme. 
over the course of the summer and autumn. 28 million shells were fired. 1.1 million men killed, wounded. Uh, for over 400,000 Brits, 200,000 uh, French, and well over 400,000 Germans killed or wounded at the Somme. And that's not including, obviously, those men whose life was blighted, who returned, and but with terrible psychological wounds. We can only guess how, what a percentage of the survivors that was. Was the Somme a victory? This is a really I, this is an essay I wrote for Neil Ferguson when I was at university, and uh, we got in an amusing fight about this. Was Somme a victory? The Somme, it's a pretty hard thing to call the Somme a victory. It was an extraordinary learning curve for the British Army. It was an extraordinary learning curve, unfortunately, also for the German Army. But the British learned about our use of artillery. They learned about creeping barrages. They learned, as the Australians used to say in 1918, the idea of a creeping barrage is very clever. You advance forward. You're the infantry, like this. From behind you, your guns are shelling the ground in front of you. Just a, a, a curtain of supersonic steel, high explosives, fire, everything, just killing everything in front of you. You've got to be so close. They learned at the Somme, you had to be so close to that barrage that you had to take casualties from it. You, you were only close enough to that barrage if some of your guys were actually being blown up by your own barrage. And you go up, and then by the time the barrage passes over, the Germans hear the barrage, oh, it's passed over, up we go, up out of our shelters, and they've already got a load of Aussies pointing bayonets at them, or Coldstream guards, or whoever. So that's the only way those creeping barrages would work. And it was minutely complicated. We learned, then we also learned about the power of tanks. Tanks could, they were in some cases useful. They could crush barbed wire. They could get across the broken terrain. They could bridge certain trenches, and they could suppress machine gun nests. We also learned a lot about... Uh, Air, air, air power, cooperation, using planes to spot what was going on the ground, radioing back, because you could put radios in planes, because they were big, chunky things, but you could put them in planes. Uh, using aircraft, to, and to, our aircraft to spot artillery as well, looking down, going, yeah, left a bit, right a bit, there you go. So we, the modern warfare is being invented on the bloody fields of the Somme. And the Somme does one other thing as well, which is it tells the Germans, the German war plan was predicated on the idea that the Brits were a minor nuisance. And uh, they would not be able to take part in a major European war in a way that would, in, it would, it would damage the German chances of winning it. The British Army, as you all know, was a couple hundred thousand, 700,000 strong, but it, but it was spread out all over the world. They were not used to fighting industrial warfare in Europe. So the German planners said, we can beat the French and Russians before the Brits have anything to do with it. The Somme tells the Germans that the British are here in unimaginable numbers and force and prepared to fight an industrial war against them. The Germans realize that, therefore, the logic of Britain plus France plus Russia, you add up all those economies, they're going to absolutely overwhelm the German ability to produce men and munitions quick enough. Uh, one German general wrote in January 1917, we cannot prevail in the second battle of the Somme with our men. They cannot achieve that anymore. Well, in January 1917, the British weren't in a position to launch Second Battle of the Somme. But the idea is that the Germans had been served notice that the British Empire had turned itself, for the first time in its entire history, into a massive European uh, um, land force. For the first, don't forget, at the Battle of Waterloo, two-thirds of Wellington's army at Waterloo were Belgians, Dutch, and Germans. Two-thirds of Wellington's army. And that's not even, that's not even the Prussians who came and, and helped late in the day at Waterloo. So... Never before has Britain been in this position. Germany turned strategically, largely as a result of the Somme, and as a result of Jutland, the two twin battles on sea and on land that happened that year, both of which convinced the Germans that the British were going to be extremely difficult to beat uh, without thinking outside the box. The Germans turned to unrestricted U-boat warfare, destroy every ship arriving in Britain, starve it into submission, knock Britain out of the war, and Russia and France would fall apart. They come alarmingly close to that. For the first time since 1690, probably, the British lose command of the oceans around the shores of Britain. But in doing so, the Germans bring in the United States of America into the war and ultimately sign their own death warrant because those vast economies lined up against them in the, in the, in the world of industrial warfare means almost certain defeat for the Germans. So the Somme was a learning curve for the British. It was a strategic setback for the Germans, but it, of course, it came at an unimaginably terrible price. And historians are going to be arguing till the end of time about whether that price was worth paying and whether that price was too high for the, for the 
successes such as they were. But listen, I'll stop talking now, because I think uh, we are sort of running our time a bit, and I'd like to have some questions from you. Is that okay? Just put your hands up. Let's go. Gent, sir, there. I heard a story about... Oh, here we go. We've got a microphone coming to you. I was told about 20 years ago that one of the major generals in charge of a division had had accurate reports from German prisoners of war captured that our barrage had utterly failed, and he recommended to General Haig that the whole of the Somme offensive be aborted, and that he was relieved of his command and sent back to England. Well, Is I, that true? Well, I don't know about the being relieved of command, but it's certainly true that, that, that Haig was, they were receiving reports, particularly both from prisoner um, questioning, but also from looking with their eyes, and they could see the German barbed wire hadn't been cut. They were assured that before, before you've even got rid of the Germans in their bunkers, you've got to cut the barbed wire. You've got piles of barbed wire to get through. And the barrage is also about breaking out barbed wire. They could see the barbed wire hadn't been cut as effective as it could have been. And that's why, as I said at the beginning of the talk, you do hear uh, there are eyewitness accounts from, from lower down, the guys who are actually peering out over the parapet and being told by their commanders that it was going to be fine and looking out and saying, well, they haven't even managed to cut the barbed wire yet. So... But so I think there was plenty of information around, and hence General Snow said they know we're coming. And, and there was, yeah, well, there was. The problem, with, the problem with great military operations is they develop a momentum of all of their own. Look at Arnhem. When, when the, it turned out there was more, than, more German strength at Arnhem than had been expected, you go, well, what do I do now? I mean, I, I, I can't cancel this entire operation because I've got one or two contrary bits of intelligence coming in. So, and I think Haig's chief intelligence was always a bit naughty about reading the intelligence he wanted. He, he was as optimistic as his boss. There was a question down here. Anyone at the back there? Madam, you, you prepare the microphone for that woman there and with the sunglass on her head. And I'll, I'll take this question. Hello. Uh, about the uh, often derided generalship on the, on, on the Somme and, on the, and from the British side in general, uh, which British commander do you think sort of think was very kind of either unfairly maligned or underrated, and which ones do you think sort of broke break the stereotype of? Oh well, that's a good question, uh, as always from you. Very good question. Um, an old friend. Uh, we uh, the, we produced lots of very good generals in World War One, uh, contrary to what uh, people think. Um, two generals that are often talked about in that respect are quite unusual. There's Curry, a, uh, a Canadian general from a very modest background. There's Monash, an Australian general who was Jewish and from a very unusual background as well. And there is a, perhaps a sense in which the generals who were public school educated, quite anti-intellectual British minor aristocracy, um, weren't quite as able to perform the intellectual gymnastics required to, to master this new kind of warfare. So Curry and Monash, two new men, uh, they, Monash is sort of believed to be, Lloyd George at one stage wanted to sort of make him the head of the BEF as a massive snub to all the, uh, the sort of establishment generals. But um, he is thought to be quite instrumental in Amiens 1918. Everyone's going to forget the First War in 1918. Everyone's going to talk about the end of it. You guys need to make sure we all commemorate the greatest, probably the most important British military success, one of them of all time, the Battle of Amiens, when they, decide, when they, when they smash the German army at Amiens, um, Ludendorff has a nervous breakdown. The Kaiser realizes it, and they're gonna, they realize they're going to lose the war. Uh, Amiens is the birth of modern warfare. Tanks roll forward, aircraft being used in concert with that, uh, infantry moving forward, working with the tanks and, and armored cars. It, extra, an extraordinary battle, 8th of August 1918, which, which I, hope, I hope we mark with, uh, as we should. So at, at the Battle of Amiens, Monash is probably the guy providing a lot of the intellectual firepower for, for that. So there are really interesting generals coming through. It's, the trouble is, the problem with the First World War is you'll have noticed with British military history, we totally suck at wars for about the first three or four years. And then, we've just, then we're brilliant. And that is because we have worked out a way to fight wars on the cheap which is you have a big navy, which doesn't cost very much money compared to armies, and you realize you're going to take loads of blows in the first years of the war. The Seven Years' War, the French Revolutionary War, the Napoleonic War, uh, the... Well, no, we lost that one. Okay, the First and Second World War, obviously, as well. And, and we reel, well, because we've got a small army, it's designed for a very, very general purpose army. They're designed to get field guns across canyons on the northwest frontier, whereas the German army can sit there all day and all night 
with all the funding it needs, thinking about how to win big tank battles on the plains of Eastern Europe or Western Europe. We don't do that in Britain. So we know that we can, we can hit the ropes for a while, like Muhammad Ali in the Congo. We can work out the plan, mobilize ourselves, and then come out swinging, and you're going to win, right? And that's our geography and our tradition as, as dictate that. So sure enough, in the First World War, by 1918, we've got the best army, that, we've got the best British army that we've ever had. Jim, do you think it was better than the army in 1944? Um, well, I do think the army in 1944 was pretty good. Okay, good. So maybe joint best. But it was, it was, lots of people would say that was the best British army we've ever had. It was a, a bloodied British army. It was young men that had been through hell. You have NCOs, you have captains that are 22 years old who've, who've been at Arras, who've been at the Somme, who've been at Passchendaele, who've been at Cambrai. I mean, unbelievable amounts of experience. And sure enough, they're really good at it. And if you want to know why Britain was, why Nelson, People always say it was Nelson one of the greatest commanders of all time. And I'm a sailor. I love Nelson. I mean, I love Nelson. But I don't think Nelson had it very hard. He was commanding an organization that had been fighting the French for 20 years and had better equipment. Uh, and so therefore, everybody knew how to fight the French. And, and the First World War, people did not know how to fight big industrial wars in Europe. So we had to learn. And that is why... Actually, by the end of the war, the British brigadiers, uh, and, and that's why my great-grandfather was sent home. Ironically, he fought quite a good battle at Cambrai, but he got fired after that one. So um, that's the way it goes. But uh, he, got, he, got, he got told to leave because he was too old. He just had to make way for younger men. And that was probably the right decision because these guys coming up, these one stars, these lieutenant colonels, were phenomenally good by, the, by 1918. Uh, the lady at the back with the mic. Then you, madam, if there's another mic, or if you've got or someone already passed the mic. Anyway, just start handing out mics, and if you've got one, ask a question. Okay. Uh, do you personally think that the cost of the Somme was too high, or do you think that actually it eventually meant that we won the war? Well, of course, I mean, it's weird. That's a very good question, that, because the, the big problem with military history is you start sitting there in your office going, I don't know why everyone's slagging off this person. Only 20,000 people got killed. You think, hold on a minute. Every death is a tragedy. And I, so I kind, of veer around, I kind of veer between becoming like a sort of Marxist who gets so angry about these young men dying. And you, know, you read, it's a Stalin quote, a million, you know, one death a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic. And when you read and you listen to the accounts of individuals, it makes you physically ill and it makes you enraged. And it makes me enraged that I'm even talking about the necessary casualties that had to be inflicted before the British Army could learn. How, you know, that's terrible. But at the same time, on a strategic level, um, you then start thinking, okay, well, they sacrificed, they, they, that was required. Not it. But uh, no, I think the casualty list at the Somme was unacceptably high. The French believed that the British uh, were, and just, and the thing to remember, of course, is the minute the Americans enter the war, they do exactly what the Brits do. They refuse, them, they refuse to put themselves under Allied joint command. And they say, no, we got this. Don't worry. Watch and learn. And they go into the Argonne Forest and they fight the bloodiest single battle in US history for virtually no advantage whatsoever. So uh, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's inevitable. But, but no, I, so the, of course the toll was too high. It's, it was an absolute tragedy. But the, the, everything's a tragedy. The First World War is an unimaginable tragedy um, and fairly avoidable. And we're still living with the consequences. Looks like someone's got a mic. Um, hi. My question really ties in with what you've been saying and what that lady said. I'm interested. You say it's the first modern battle and the, we threw men at them. How did we manage to keep control of the civilian population, losing all these people in unprecedented numbers that they'd never seen before and getting terrible modern injuries? How did the British government manage to keep control of that and keep sending people to die? Well, that's a very good question, Dee. It was a whole different talk, but I'm really glad you raised it. I mean, very, very briefly, the British government had an unprecedented control of what people heard and thought. Uh, there was no um, Twitter back then. Uh, they were able to pump out propaganda on an absolutely monumental scale, but it disguises the fact that there was... Syria, there was unrest in Britain. There was industrial unrest went through the roof by the end of the First World War. Uh, people were um, people were deeply unhappy, and, and the troubles you see after the war, you know, the tumultuous times in, in, around Europe, show that societies were at breaking point. Russian society broke, German society broke, Italian society came near breaking. This was a battle being fought in every household, every church pulpit, every scout group, and, and the forces of the establishment effectively fought an absolutely unrestricted warfare back home, trying to convince people this was worth it, trying to say that, that uh, 
try to try to and try to generate and, and of course conscriptions come in because people aren't volunteering anymore now so there is an, a, a dampening down of the enthusiasm for this war and it becomes about telling the populations at home that although it's a disaster the alternative is a lot worse so the germans keep fighting because they don't want the russians stampeding over their eastern border understandably so but that's a, a great question i'm sorry i didn't have more time on that are we one more one more sir sorry at the back one more dan Warfare had been industrialized, the supply chain had been industrialized in the American Civil War some years before. Was there no movement of ideas across the Atlantic that would have enabled us to move quicker? Today is the anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg when Pickett's charge assaulted Cemetery Ridge. Okay? General Robert Lee decided to send a crack unit uh, under General Pickett directly at the strongest point of the American line and they were annihilated with casualties very, very similar to the first day of the Somme. So this did not come as a surprise to military thinkers, as you absolutely point out. There had been the American Civil War, which was a giant, brutal industrial siege warfare, uh, especially the advance on Richmond at the end. There was the Russo-Japanese War, which was basically the First World War in Asia, when, and, and people were there watching it. They knew exactly what was going to happen. People knew exactly what was going to happen in the First World War. But, but it just took years for those ideas to percolate through. And the solutions that people came up with were inaccurate. So the French believed everyone who knew anything about, everyone who knew about these international examples knew that the firepower was this, there had been a firepower revolution. But their only solution to getting through that beaten zone of firepower was to get enough guys, motivate them well enough, and walk them through it. Because there wasn't another solution at that point. Uh, or any other solution was seen as unacceptably um, unpatriotic and slow moving. You know, just, you could mine, or you, which is, of course, what the US Army eventually does outside Richmond, and what we do in the First World War. But pre war planners don't want to think of themselves as dig miners who are just digging all day. They like to think of themselves in the tradition of, of Wellington and Nelson, Napoleon. So they knew it was coming. They knew that the men were going to be subjected to this storm of steel. But their answer was get enough men motivate them enough with ideas of religion, patriotism, pride, all that kind of stuff, and then send them to the enemy, and you're going to take terrible casualties, but the last man's going to get through. Thanks, Dan, for yet another epic talk and uh, for making it in your very busy schedule. Thank you. Thank you.